We are uh, in the section that uh, kind of finishes up the first chapter of Philippians. And Paul had just finished a section of uh, Scripture there intimating that he was okay with living and he was okay with dying. I mean, he had that down. And um, the main thing that he wanted was that the Gospel would be advanced, that it would be furthered. And that was really what was in the very motive uh, of Paul's living or dying. And so it was all right. It was all right if uh, if he lived, if he died. And of course, thinking of this, um, the idea of death, he knew that he had to go to be with the Lord. And it's kind of interesting as we go into this uh, next section, and especially this next verse or two, um, it kind of deals with uh, an army, uh, a battleground, facing uh, the enemy. And so we're on a battlefield as we look at this. And Paul saw himself as a soldier. Uh, quite a few times he mentions uh, that we are soldiers. We're fighting. We're in a spiritual warfare. We know that the enemy would love to kill us physically and, and spiritually and, and in every way. Um, Paul knew that he was not on a playground. This is a battleground that he was on. This is a battleground that we are on. And we must always remember that. Be aware. And uh, anyway, uh, he knew he was a soldier. Defending the very treasure, the very gospel that God has given him. And it's a treasure that the enemy wants to steal from him. Now, when you're soldiers, we are soldiers, on this battlefield, we're fighting the enemy. We know he wants to destroy us. We know he wants to take the treasure that we have, the treasure of this very gospel. How can a group of Christians like us, how can we fight this enemy? Well, we know that we use spiritual weapons. Uh, we do not use uh, weapons of the flesh. We have to use the spiritual weapons in this spiritual warfare that's going on. And we use those weapons that are uh, dealing with the Word of God, prayer, what a fight we have, what a struggle we have. An army must fight together. You can't have lone rangers out there, but you fight together. Constantly fighting together. And that's what Paul is concerned about uh, as far as the Philippians are concerned. He wants them to realize that they are in this together. They have a fight. They have a battle. So what he does, he gives some admonitions here to them. And these admonitions, as you look at it, will define what a good, spiritual, healthy church is. Um, Just at least in this text, we can see this lens... Uh, credence to the fact that we can also model, or we see this model of what a, a, a healthy church is supposed to be. Here are the good marks here. Here, here are at least three of them that we're going to look at. So we should be able to recognize this as we're engaged in battle and uh, realize that uh, we, these are essentials. They're not something that we can take or leave. These are essentials for us to fight as we are in the battle and we're not going to lay down We're going to fight in this. Now, as the Philippian church, as they were addressed by Paul to fight together, we see that we're striving together to fight for the Gospel. Did you ever think of it that way? We're all in this together. We're an army. We're a team. We're fighting together. Not alone. That's good to know. We have other people that are fighting this with us. We're under the banner of the cross. And because of that, we know we have a victory in this. Uh, what we use is a message. A message of good news. Now, this message is something that the world hates. Have you discovered that? 
The world hates the gospel message. The message of the good news. The very thing that can free them from the situation they are in is what they hate. And whether it be other religions, whether it be other philosophies, whether it be other kind of of thoughts, ideologies, the theologies of the world hate this one true gospel of grace. And when it really comes down to it, the the true gospel of grace is something that is not understood by most of the people um, in the world. And many in the church don't understand really what that gospel of grace is. And we're called to defend this gospel of grace as we fight, as we struggle together. So, anyway, what we're going to do is look at the way a local assembly is to be as well as the whole body of Christ. And we can say this is why teaching in the local church is very important. You say, you know, we just get together and we just we go through the Bible. And, you know, really, I could do that at home. And I can listen to messages at home. And that's true, and, and you really ought to. But it's very important for a church, one of the most important things they can do is be teaching the Bible and constantly. Because none of us have it all together, do we? We will never have it all together until that day that Christ comes back and glorifies us. But we're here to preserve the Gospel. That's what the church is is about, to preserve this Gospel that was once delivered unto the saints. That's us. And so we do it on a regular basis. We uh, focus around the Word of God and we learn what the Word of God says. And that's why churches uh, have Bible studies. That's why we're meeting here this Sunday morning. That's why we meet Monday night. And then, of course, now we meet Wednesday night. There's a reason for that. It's not just to be busy, to be doing things that the church is supposed to be doing, but it's doing something that is to build us up because the rest of the week, we might have three, four hours or whatever you know, together. The rest of the week... It seems like we're fighting this thing alone, and whether we be at work or family or neighborhood or whatever, and sometimes it's a hard struggle. We must have um, times where we get together that builds us up. Uh, Worship of God and fellowship, uh, to understand the faith. If we don't have that, we'll start getting weak. That's why God has ordained this um, thing called the church, which is so beautiful. Uh, We're in a battle. And the devil, the enemy wants to rob us of our, of our faith that's delivered to us, to take away from us. And uh, we know that this gospel is, is an inward thing. And the church is one generation away from dropping it all, from being extinct. It always has been for 2,000 years. But God will continue His church as long as it's supposed to be. But little local assemblies are one generation away. And if we don't have uh, younger people come in, if we don't teach them, then what are they going to? Ha- how are they going to continue this church on? I don't want this as we all die out to, to be the last of this little local church. I want it to continue on, don't you guys? Because it's not about us anyway. It's all about God, and we want to make sure that we train our young people and people who are uh, what intermediate age and middle aged and and uh, old age. We have to continue with that. It's not because, oh wait, uh, that's, that's just for those people. They need that and I don't need it because I already know everything anymore. I, you know, I already got it together. I know what it is pretty well. Listen, it never does get old. Um, 
So anyway, we don't want to lose that deposit, do we? So I took a long time for an introduction, hoping that that will help us as it sinks in, as we look at the text here now, and recognize that we have some essential truths here to be a healthy spiritual church. Do you guys want to be a healthy spiritual church? Alright, let's stand and stand firm now on the Word of God. Let's, let's read this Word of God starting in Philippians 1, verse 27 through the rest of the chapter. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in Me and now here to be in Me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Precious truth, this treasure, may we be able to advance it on and be able to understand today what You have in mind for us as You speak to us. Not me but that Your Word would be empowered by Your Spirit and that whatever is brought forth, that whatever is lacking, that it will still bring forth to each one's own heart and make an impact. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Wow, what an admonition. Uh, the word here, conduct, conduct yourselves. Um, the... Greek word is polis, P-O-L-I-S, uh, related to, how about something like metropolitan, politan, right? Um, dealing with a city, um, a citizen uh, or a citizen of a city-state, that kind of an idea, the, the polis, or a politician, pala, it's, it's all related, and that root word is, is there, and it's dealing with conduct of life or your citizenship. How you conduct yourself. Now, okay, we uh, are addressing the Philippians, if we're Paul. And at Philippi, just looking at their local city that they have, it's a city-state. And they have quite the privileges there because they are a Roman city-state. They're a Roman city. They are proud of being a Roman city. As a matter of fact, the people there were so proud of their city, they called it Little Rome. I mean, that was the ultimate. If you're in a Roman Empire, Rome is the capital of the world as far as they're concerned. And Philippi is just as good. It's just a little smaller. Now, that's how important it was to them. So it was a Roman city-state. And as Paul addresses them, he uses this word, polis, and I don't think it's just by accident as, as he talks about conducting. It's, it's talking about, hey, here's what God has equipped you with. Now here's what you do. Um, what he's saying here is the people were Roman citizens and they were to conduct themselves in Philippi as Roman citizens. Citizenship. It was for the good of the city that they were to live. You representing Rome right here in Philippi, it's for the good of the Roman Empire. It's for the good of the city-state. You representing Philippi, which is representing Rome. 
your conduct needs to be worthy of that. Now that's what an average citizen of Philippi would have thought. Okay, now, you're a Philippian citizen and now you've become a Christian. And you recognize that not only are you to represent Philippi, but Paul is saying you have a citizenship also where? In heaven. And so this word palos is dealing with that. He's translating to the Philippian church here that they are to live consistent the way that they would as far as the city-state is concerned. Now they're to live their lives consistent with the citizenship of heaven. I think that standard is even much higher. Now, only conduct to yourselves. Does that help? Uh, Go to Philippians 3.20. And he'll say this in a couple of chapters later. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for Him. And um, we know that our citizenship right now is there. So he's saying, you are citizens of the kingdom of God right now. So you represent the kingdom in that way. Now, whether Paul was living or whether he was dead, it didn't matter. As far as the kingdom of God is concerned, it's not about him. And he is concerned about the Philippians that they would live a life that would be worthy of in, in their conduct. Being characteristic of not only Philippi, but definitely the kingdom of God. The bat, uh, I, I, would, I would think you would say the absolute bottom line that they would have here is that they would have a proper behavior of a citizen of the kingdom. Now translate that to us today, 2,000 years. Conduct yourselves or be like citizens of the kingdom of God right here in Jefferson City, Missouri. Right in this area. Or... Tipton or Westphalia. How many other cities do we have? Old Summit. What? Michigan. Right? Yeah. Somewhere around Grand Rapids. Your citizens are there, but really you're representing the very kingdom of God when you're here. And this is what this starts off with. Now, if that's not enough, there there is much more to go. This is just introducing to us this situation. Now, if you've had enough... I invite you to stand up and go ahead and walk and get on out of here because it's going to get worse. <laughs> Just kidding. It gets better. Uh, you can say, Ma, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Sure we can. We have the Spirit of God in us, don't we? The idea here is to stand firm. Uh, we advance on through. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul said, hey, whether I'm there with you, keep conducting it. Whether I'm gone, you better keep conducting yourself, right? Just like whenever the teacher's out of the room, you know what the class does, don't you? <laughs> you know, he wants them, whether he's there or not, to just keep conducting yourself the way he should. I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Okay, now here's our first point. Here's our first mark we're going to look at. Standing firm. That is the mark of a healthy church. If you're standing firm, solid, rock, 
That's the idea. Now he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. We've already kind of touched on that, but the manner worthy here, consistent with the values of the kingdom. Uh, the church is mocked today. It's made fun of. And to be honest with you, a lot of times the church is not consistent with what they believe or what they should believe, I'll put. And sometimes whether they have good theology... The problem is is that sometimes they still don't represent the kingdom of God with integrity. It must be worthy of the gospel. The church must be showing that. And so there's an ultimate question here Paul is asking of the church. What's your testimony to the outside world? What kind of testimony is that? Could they say, yeah, yeah, they, um, yeah, they go to church, uh, Christians, uh, uh, I... I definitely trust them. And I respect them. I don't believe what they believe. and It's junk, but I'll tell you what. I can say that uh, they live a consistent life. What they say and what they do. Can, can, they, can they say about that of you? Uh, Paul, it's almost like he's saying, hey, I was, uh, if I was walking down the street of Philippi, what would I hear about this little church in Philippi? What would I hear about them? Right? Um, let's go to Second Corinthians chapter three, verse two. You are our letter. This is to the Corinthians. The Corinthians is a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are letters. People are reading us. Have you thought of that? They're reading us. They're watching us. They're listening to us. And don't let it be contradictory, Paul is saying. You are a letter. You're being read. Look at Acts 4.13. Oh, that's humbling, isn't it? Wow, they are watching. 4.13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John. Early church. Very early church. Peter and John, they're preaching the Word of God. They're doing the Gospel. And they understood that they were uneducated. They hadn't been to seminary. They hadn't been to the, the, the schools. They were fishermen, uh, Galileans. Uneducated and untrained men. Shortly after the time of Christ, as He was here on earth. Look at this though. The people... Watched them. They were amazed and began to recognize them. Here we go. You ready? As having been with Jesus. Ooh. Whether they liked it or not, they recognized they had been with Jesus. That's how much of a letter they were. So full of God's Word and so full of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing, isn't it? A church must live its theology. I like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. After all that great doctrine, oh, beautiful doctrine in Ephesians and talking about election and predestination and adoption and that would have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and all that and all the blessings that come with that. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, verse 4 says this, Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That calling you have. Oh, that you would recognize the calling that you have. That's what Paul had prayed about in chapter 1, chapter 3. 
that they would recognize the blessings that they have and be worthy uh, of that, of showing that in, in their lives. Look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. The next book over, right after Philippians. Looking at some uh, prison epistles here. Paul gives some of the same kind of admonitions. He's talking about that, that they would know the, His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing that good fruit. So that's the idea. Um, I want you to listen to this. This is a, a main point here. I'd put a star by this, an, an asterisk, a, a bullet. You know, put put something there on this. Um, I don't think you have it on your sheet, but I wish I would have put it in there. The battle, the battle that we're in, is being fought today, more than ever, upon the ground of how we behave, how we live as believers and as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's how we live as neighbors. It's how we live as parents. It's how we live as children. It's how we live as businessmen, businesswomen. It's how we believe as employees. It's how we believe and live as employers, as students, as tradesmen. Whatever we do, wherever we're at in our life, that's where the battle is at. That's where the rubber meets the road, folks. That's the battle. The battle is won or lost and how we live, whether we live as becoming the very gospel of Christ or detracting from the gospel of Christ. That's the battle. That's where it's at. And that is what people are looking at. They should see the living Word of God in us being lived out. The best literature that you can give to your next door neighbor not necessarily attract the best literature is letting them be able to read your own life. You say, well, I want to be private. I don't want anybody to see into my life. By the way, I don't even want Christians to see into my life. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't equate in the Christian church because we are to be open. We are to be a letter for all to read so that the Gospel would be furthered So let them read your life. Let them read that. There is no other substitute that is as good as letting somebody read your own life. It's not that you really have to try and just, you know, go out there and say, hey, look, I'm a Christian and put signs up and everything. You don't have to do that. Just live the way that you are, and Christ will shine. Um, The gospel, he says in Philippians here. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel. That's the reason we're here today. It's the gospel, right? We were called by the gospel. We live by the gospel. The gospel is the very heart of our message. It's the good news. It's a treasure. We carry it. While we're in battle, while we're in war, we're having this treasure that we're carrying along. It's the good news that we have. But when the church doesn't exhibit what it proclaims, the world does not see good news what do they have that makes a difference? I mean, whenever they see something and it's not proclaiming good news and they don't see it, they don't feel it, why should they be attracted to what we believe in? Why? Look in Jude 3. Just before the book of Revelation. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth 
That is, how you are walking in truth or living or conducting or being the citizen, right, of this city-state, of this kingdom. And then John said, I have no greater joy. This is the, this is the sunabonum. This is the whipped cream on top of all the dessert. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Because when you walk in the truth, that glorifies God, right? And man, he was uh, really proud of that fact. Whenever he, he was just rejoicing over that. They were walking. They were living in truth. That's what they were really doing. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. This is Paul writing to uh, the young pastor. 1 Timothy 1.11 Paul keeps giving him certain admonitions all the way through the letter. He says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We have been entrusted. God trusts us with this treasure of the gospel. It's the glorious gospel. Look at this. Glorious gospel of the happy God. Of the blessed God. It's a glorious gospel, folks. It's the most glorious thing that we carry with us. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. It's all about Him. Did you know that God is the gospel? That's the best way to define it. Ultimately, God is the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. How you do it? Well, avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith, grace be with you. You guard the truth. Guard it. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. You heard this. There were a lot of people around. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what a church does. A local church feeds all the people. And the ones who will be leading later on, they're equipped with this Word. Everybody is equipped. There are certain ones who are going to be leaders also. and So they're entrusted with this treasure so they will continue on. That's how God has designed His plan of the church. And it is amazing to me that it would exist for 2,000 years. Because if it were man's way and He would have done it His own way, it would have been destroyed in the first century. It never made it and all the false teachings that came up, but God advances the Gospel. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, we go into the enemy's camp. That's the idea. It's not that the enemy is coming in and knocking us down, but we're going in with the Gospel into this world proclaiming what we know to be truth. And let me tell you, Today, in 2012, it's more impolitically correct than it ever has been in my lifetime. I'm telling you, it is very, very opposite of what the world is out there. And we're just advancing it on further. Gates of Hill is not going to prevail against it. We keep advancing. We keep marching on. The Gospel. Now, standing firm. What's the idea? The church is on the battlefield. The church is standing firm. This is a military term as we are in uh, Philippians 1.27. You're standing firm in one spirit. The word is 
stecho in the Greek, whether you want to memorize that or not, that's okay, it doesn't matter. But what does that mean? It, it is to be at post in a war. It's to be in a situation that you're not going to move. You are in a post guarding it. You will not budge to be on your post and not moving. You know what that means to us? How does that translate to the church? It means not compromising with sin whatsoever. Standing right there and not allowing sin as it tempts us to move us. Don't move in your terms of conduct. As far as your citizenship is concerned, don't move. Be strong, be steady. And that means living a godly life that is pure, that's holy, that's obedient. To stand firm means to resist Satan, the flesh, the world, to resist temptation, to stand firm. The military metaphor is of holding a critical position. We hold a critical position in this world today with a tremendous attack on. Spiritually, that attack is unbelievable. And I'm glad we don't see it all of what is going on. Thankfully, there's a spiritual warfare that's going on where there are good angels battling the demons, but yet at the same time, we know that uh, Satan attacks Christians. And so we stand firm. And we know what Ephesians 6 says, verse 11 through 13. It says, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm. Now, our Philippians here, it's back a few pages now. We go back to Philippians in chapter one. Standing firm in one spirit and one mind. Unity. Standing firm in unity. Uh, it's not standing alone. When you think of that, you, sometimes you think of I've got to stand firm here. I've got to watch this sin. We are not standing alone. We are standing together. We are standing in unity. One spirit, one mind. That's the thought here. Numati, the spirit. And mind here uh, is actually the word suke, which deals with the soul. What we're talking about is the very inward part of us. Uh, that's the idea. The, the attitude would be of, uh, of sharing in, in oneness and, and, and all humility. He, Paul is saying, I plead for you that you would work for unity to maintain the unity, whether I'm here or not. As you're conducting yourself, you are standing firm together. Thinking like, having inwardly in us alike. Well, that's important. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. In Romans, the first 11 chapters, you have doctrine, and then you get into Romans 12, and he says, here's now how you live it. Here's the application. Verse 5, he says, So we, who are many, many in the church, are one body, in Christ, 
and individually members one of another. We all know that. We've heard it a thousand times. It's all over Scripture and Paul used that continually. As we are in Christ, we are in this thing together. We are in this together and we're to think alike. We're to react alike. Because if we have the same Spirit, we have the same Word of God here, we should be thinking alike as we teach the same Word of God. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I read that many, many times, haven't we? Togetherness. Uh, that's the idea. This is a picture of a soldier, as we have looked already in verse 27. But at the end of verse 27, we're moving into something that is dealing with now an athlete. You're a soldier, you're an athlete. Well, that means being in shape, doesn't it? When you're a soldier, you got boot camp and you must stay in shape. Ooh, push-ups, pull-ups, <laughs> sit-ups. I'm tired. <laughs> I think, well, that's hard work. You know, I mean, it is staying in shape. And so he gets into another phrase here in uh, verse 27. As he said, standing firm, that was military. Now we get into an athletic term. It means to strive together. Not only do we stand together, but we strive together. Uh, An athletic term, you can think of the Olympics. They have the Olympics in in, in Athens, for instance. You can think of the Greek world and how important that uh, athletic... um, Situations that they had, the contests that they had were, and they would. Uh, that was such a word that they they would strive. An athlete would strive uh, to win that race, to win the match, the wrestling match. To strive, it means to put forth an effort. It means to contend. It means to fight. It means to struggle. It means to strive, contend. That's a hard word, isn't it? That's the word that he uses. And by the way, the word is a, uh, a two-part word. Soon, sum athleo. Athleo, that's easy. English, athletics. Soon is dealing with together. To contend together. So it's not just us striving alone or standing alone. Now, striving alone, it's Together with. Together. So we go to this picture of this athlete and he is on a team and they have a common goal. What's the goal for a team? To win. Right? We want to win this contest. We want to win this game. We want to win this match. We're going to do it as a team. There is no room for an individual Christian in the body of Christ. We all do this together. We face such a hostile world out there. Sometimes we forget how hostile it is. But we face a world that rejects God as a whole. Do you know most people in in Jeff City who really know God and are really, really desiring to live for the glory of God? Do you think most people in Jeff City are that way? Now expand that on to the rest of the world. We know better. How many people are in the world today? Is it, is it 6 billion now? 
It's up to seven billion. It's growing quick. And I think at one time, one billion professed to be Christians. It might be a billion and a half now or so. Who knows? But that takes in uh, a lot of people who would be in cults or really false churches and people who really don't know Christ. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that really limits it. Um, there are a lot of Christians. There are going to be a lot in heaven, but I want to tell you, we're in a world that far outnumbers our numbers, and we are to stand firm and we're to fight this battle. We're to strive. The army that faces death, and they know. The army is out there every day, and they know any moment could be their last moment. I mean, when reality strikes and you have bullets flying over you and all around you and you're seeing people drop, you know your moment could be at any time. Well, listen, when you're fighting with other soldiers aside, you're not in any kind of contention. You don't have any any kind of internal quarrels at all because you have an enemy that you are fighting. Your people are on your team and you don't have any inward battles going on here. You know, there might have been a brother-to-brother fight going on, you know, but whenever they get into the real battle, they know that they are together. No petty internal conflicts are going to happen when a battle really happens. Togetherness as a team. Hope you like it, because that's the way it is from here on out. And that's the way it's been. If you're in the body of Christ, you're with everybody else. Now, he says, stand firm. He says, strive together for the faith of the Gospel. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too, from God. What's the idea? Not alarmed. And it brings in the idea of a, of a horse who's startled. You've seen a horse that's spooked. It gets scared all of a moment and it just bolts. <laughs> takes off. Uh, there's a sign there that the, the horse doesn't like. Uh, a horse shying away from battle. Think of a war horse. Anybody get, see that movie? Was, was it called War Horse or something like that? Boy, that was, that was a war movie. I'll tell you. I thought it was going to be about horses and really mild and gentle. Well, when you get out of there, you felt like you've been in a battle. War torn. He's saying, don't be that way. Don't be terrified. We're in a battle imagery here, aren't we? So the horse is getting ready to charge into battle, and then all of a sudden it sees something it doesn't like. Or you know, maybe the sounds. The sounds of a cannon going off. The sounds of bullets flying by. Gunfire. Or even the smell. The smell of blood and the stench of the smog, the gunpowder. How about the dampness of the battlefield? All of that that's, that's around. And all of a sudden the horse, rather than going on, it shudders with the fear and it's nervous. And it just steps back from the fight and maybe takes off and runs another way. That's a graphic picture that Paul uses here in no way alarmed. That's the idea of, of, of this horse. Um, well, that's quite a thought, isn't it? We don't want to be startled like a horse. And no way alarmed by your points. Don't be afraid. You have no reason whatsoever to be afraid in this war, this battle. Wow. And he says, they have hostility. Yeah, they're hostile. But what it is, it proves to you that they're a sign of destruction. 
they will be destroyed or loosened from their strength that they have. But a salvation for you and that too from God. So, if they continue in the position they're in, all it does is show that these people are lost and they're headed for the city of destruction unless God comes in and changes their heart. It proves to you that this is a real battle. And it's a sign to you that they will be destroyed. But to you, it shows that you have salvation. You have all the hope in this. It's a sign that you're going to be saved. Ultimately, the ultimate salvation in the end. I mean, if they're attacking you, that proves whose side they are on and it proves whose side you are on. If you're standing firm on an issue, whether it be abortion, whether it be homosexuality, other evil things that are in this nation, whether it be, uh, how about evolution? All those things we... Uh, stand firm on the Word of God. But the attack comes at you and you stand firm on that. And it's a sign that they're headed for destruction unless something supernaturally happens to them. And you will be saved because you're on the truth. You're standing on the truth. So we've seen two things already, haven't we? That we are to stand together. That's how a church can look healthy and be healthy. And they're to strive together. And that is a church that is healthy as we're striving together. And then there's one other one that we'll look at today here. This is something that Paul would bring this in. I'm sure I wouldn't have. Man, if you've got, a, if you've got some kind of a motivation speech, you don't want to start thinking about negative things. And Paul doesn't throw in a negative thing here. It's actually positive. <coughs> but if somebody were to read this for the first time, I'm sure they'd think, wow, that's a negative thinking there, Paul. Uh, you, you really need to think better than that. Don't you like this? Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, for His sake, not only to believe in Him. Let's stop right here because I really like to camp out in that one. But we'll move on. There's a point that he's trying to make. But uh, we'll, we'll make the point. This is really upbeat. I mean, isn't this great? This is one of the best things that um, I can think of. Uh, He granted that I would believe in Him. That means He granted faith. That word believe is the same word as faith. He granted faith to me. He gave me faith. By the way, the word for granted is charis. It's related to that root word. And you know what charis is? There's a church up in Columbia called charis. Well, there's a couple of churches I know of here in Jeff City that are called Chorus, but they're, they're, the word is used in English, Grace. Grace Community and Grace uh, E-Free. Grace. Grace. He graced us with faith. Isn't that lovely? Here we've been hitting so hard on being an athlete and being in shape and being strong, standing firm as a military soldier. And he tells you, oh, by the way, um, God gave you the faith that you have. So that's why when things do get so rough and sometimes we don't feel like we have the faith, we can say, yeah, but it's God's faith. And He gave that to me. My faith doesn't seem like anything. And, but at the same time, it's, it's His faith. That's how you were able to believe. He granted it to you. He caressed it. He graced you. 
the gift from God, and of course everybody knows of Ephesians 2.8, and I think it's right there, right in front of us. However one wants to take it, and either way, it doesn't matter. It's, I think it says it very clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's that instrument that He gives you. You're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Whether it's grace that's a gift, He's repeating that same word, or faith is a gift. You can read it either way. It doesn't matter. It's saying the same thing. He gave you this. He gave you this salvation. He gave you faith. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. Philippians says that. Faith is a gift. Aren't you rejoicing over that? And He doesn't take the gift away. So, Philippians, uh, To the Philippians, Paul just reminds them, for to you, it has been graced for Christ's sake. Ultimately, it's not for our sake that He saved us. He saved us for Christ's sake. We were given to the Son by the Father. We are gifts to Him. It's all about Christ's sake. And boy, we get to get in on this, don't we? But it's not only granted that we would believe... I was wondering to think. This is out of a... This is out of an old hymn, I think. I'm not so sure if it's an old hymn or a, a new hymn that sounds old. <laughs> but here's a line here. And I heard it this week. Um, somebody posted it up on Facebook. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not... I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. Don't you like that? I don't know what hymn that is from. Uh, I I think it's I Sought the Lord is the title of it. When you see that title, you go, oh, see? Sounds like an Arminian. But no, I sought the Lord and after I knew He moved my soul to seek Him. Don't you like He moved my soul. He opened my heart so that I would seek Him. It was not that I found Him, the Savior. No, I was found of Him. Wow. He granted the faith to me. All for the glory of Christ. And here we go. Here we go. Here we go. But also, He granted that we would suffer. So here's our third point. He granted that we would have the privilege of suffering. If a church is what it's supposed to be, it will fill in the blank. It will suffer. If everything is easy and everything just goes, just everything right and everything, it's probably not right. Because <laughs> there's a battle. And the enemy doesn't like a church that's preaching the Word of God and living the Word of God and there's success there. The enemy hates it. Faith is a gift of God. Man is responsible, though, for believing. Faith is necessary. God has not only chosen to save us, but He's also chosen so that we'd suffer. Don't you understand that just like your faith was a gift from God, that suffering comes along in our experiences? I want you to catch this. And I'm not saying anything that the text is not saying. I'm just kind of trying to amplify it here. Faith is a gift, and we love that idea. But when we experience the gift of suffering, we don't really like to say that, do we? The, what did I say? 
We've been granted or graced with what? Suffering. If we really believe the sovereign God, and we do, we, we talk about it all the time amongst ourselves. We preach it and teach it. Sovereignty of God and suffering is no surprise to Him. And whether it be a direct matter or whether it be an indirect matter, God is sovereign in all of that. And we can say, what is going on? We may not understand, but one thing we can always rely upon, even though it's pain and it's hard, and, and really, I mean, it is very difficult, when it's all said and done, underlining and holding all this up is the fact that God is in control of this situation. We know that. And I think every Christian, Arminian or Calvinist or whatever you want to call them, Wesleyan, listen, I want to tell you, they, if you're a real Christian, you have to believe that. You have to believe it. If you don't believe that He's in control of things, then He's not Lord. Right? If the enemy is doing this and God can't do anything about it, then I've got a different God. And Paul goes on to say here something the church doesn't even talk about, and I'll admit I don't like to use this either. He has gifted me with some suffering going on here. He gave me that gift. <laughs> is that hard to say? That's what it says here in this Scripture. We would like to say the positive thing, but not the other one. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Well, Christ did. No pain, no gain. Right? Whew. That's really hard. Philippians 3.10, Paul says it again. Paul, come on. You know, Paul, I, I want to be like you, but give me a break. You know, I mean, you're Paul and I'm not, and I can't, I can't do this. <clears throat> Here's what Paul really desired. He wants to know the righteousness of God on the basis of faith. And then he says this. This is troubling. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Yes! Yes, Paul, I'm, I'm right with you, man. And then the very next phrase. And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Why, Paul? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So I want to know what it is all the way to the point of suffering, even to the point of death, because I know that's the only way that I'm going to resurrect from the dead too. And I'll be like Christ was whenever He came out of the dead. And to have a glorified body. Listen, I don't want to remain in this body forever. I want this to be translated into a glorified body. This body's going to die. Look at it. Be reasonable. That's what's happening. It's dying out. The cells are dying constantly. Sometimes you can even see them. Look at that. Look in the light. We're dying. Physically, we're dying. That's okay. That's what God has planned. Because there's something else better. And He'll use suffering along with that. Because it's a gift. It's all wrapped up in a present and has a ribbon on it. <laughs> That's really hard for me to figure out. It says it here. I have to believe it. But boy, sometimes it is hard. Revelation 2.10, John tells them this. Here, look at this. Do not fear. Remember about the fearing? Paul said that. Hey, don't fear. Don't be like a horse that's uh, you know, going to fear. What you are about to suffer. 
you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. Oh, man. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You have trouble. Trouble? I've got trouble. You heard that song? I'm not going to sing it. We would have trouble if I did that. Paul wants the Philippians to know faith. And not only faith, is a gift. It's a sign that God is with them. It's not a sign that God is abandoned. He feels like He left. It doesn't seem like He's here. I pray and I'm not getting an answer. And I just am I'm tired. I'm waiting and I don't see what God has in mind. It's not a sign of the failure of His power. It's not a sign that He doesn't care, that He's not looking. It's not a sign of His punishment. He said, well, sometimes I think He's punishing me. He's a Father. He disciplines but He's not punishing us in the, in the sense of uh, one who's punished us uh, from wrath. Uh, it must be from lack of faith. Because of my lack of faith. No. It's for Christ's sake. <laughs> for Christ's sake. That's why. He gifted me so that Christ would be glorified. Not only am I granted for Christ's sake, but not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. He suffered. We suffered. Listen, I'll tell you what. The Joel Osteens of this world would um, be very angry at what we're reading here today and what we're talking about because this goes totally against the grain that they are talking about out in the so-called world today in the church. The world in the church. Listen, it must be an enormous privilege to have a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. I really have a hard time saying that to him. It's a blessing. It's a privilege from God. It's a gift from Him. It's under His complete control. How about that one? I might like to say that one. It's under His complete control. Oh, look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Early church, early church is really being persecuted. I mean the persecution is coming on. And, and Peter says, after you have suffered, after you have suffered, I guarantee this, after you have suffered for a little while, a little while, you're talking, this has been going on for months, Dennis. <laughs> a little while. This has been going on for years, Dennis. A little while <coughs> to eternity. The God, look at this, of all grace. There's no other grace. This is, all, this is where it's all at. He's, you know, he's 100% gracious God. The God of all grace. That's what He's about. Who called you, this gracious God who calls you in grace, who called you to what? His eternal glory. Here we are for a momentary light affliction and He calls us to eternal glory. Now, which one is better? Eternal glory or momentary affliction? I'll take the eternal glory. Eternal glory before that has a little bit of momentary affliction. What's momentary? Just for a little while. 
God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect. Look at this. It's about us. He's going to perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. And what can you say to that? To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, when you say amen, you know what you're saying? I agree, God. I agree. I agree with this. This is the right plan. I'm going to read a little bit of what uh, John Piper said. And what I want you to think about, you say, well, that, you're, talking about, uh, you're talking about persecution here. And I don't really feel the persecution happening here. I see some people are having difficulty. Well, I want to tell you that it's more than just persecution. I know there are people all in other nations who are being torched. Torched to death because they believe in Christ. And I don't play that down. I'm going, uh, we must pray for them. We must pray hard for them. Because it's difficult. That's a reality. But I want to tell you something else. Suffering is all the conflict we encounter. Down to even a little physical pain is part of this deal. I want you to listen to what John Piper says. As Christians, in choosing to follow Christ in the way that He directs, that's obedience. We choose all that this path includes under His sovereign providence. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ, whether it's cancer or conflict. All experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether it's from persecution or sickness or accident, they have this in common. They all threaten our faith Mm, in the goodness of God. When you go through a terrible sickness, if you're really sick, it can challenge your faith. your, Your faith is challenged. And they tempt us to leave the path of obedience. I give up. Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance and obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God. And the preciousness of Christ, whether the enemy is sickness, whether the enemy is Satan, whether the enemy is sin or sabotage. Piper's not through. You ready for a little bit more? goes on to say this. Not only that, the suffering of sickness and the suffering of persecution have this in common. They're both intended by Satan for the destruction of our faith. And they're governed by God for the purifying of our faith. God lets Satan do that. He did it with Job. He does it with us today. He he allows him to do that. So, one end, Satan is trying to destroy us and what's God doing? He's strengthening us. He's confirming us. He's establishing us, as Peter just said. He's purifying us. Suffering for persecution and sickness are often indistinguishable, Piper says. Suppose that the Apostle Paul had gotten pneumonia from all his work and exposure. Would that pneumonia have been persecution? Or would it have been suffering for the sake of Christ? Well, Paul didn't make a distinction between being beaten by rods and having a cold while traveling between towns. For him, all the suffering that befell him while serving Christ was a part of the cost of discipleship. When a missionary's child gets sick, that's a part of the missionary's faithfulness. 
But if any parent is walking in the path of obedience to God's calling, it is the same price. What turns sufferings into sufferings with and for Christ is not how intentional our enemies are, but how faithful we are. Regardless of what's going on, it's suffering. And he says, here's what depends on how we respond to it. That is the battle. And that's what you're showing the world. If we are belong to Christ, then what befalls us is for His glory and for our good, whether it's caused by enzymes or enemies. When we speak of the purposes of suffering, we mean both by persecution and the accidents and sicknesses that befall us in any path of faith. You think of this Western world, and you think especially of our country. We're so fat spiritually. We have it so good, so comfortable. And we know what's coming down the road, though, don't we? We know the difficulties happening. I want you to think about this. We have been so oddly comfortable and so at ease in the church today in this nation. Suffering really, in, in, in some ways, even I'm not trying to take away from what we just talked about, what Piper was saying, but sometimes the suffering isn't a mark of us. Because when it gets uncomfortable, we see uncomfortable, we don't want to be a part of that. We're, we don't like painful realities. But so, Paul says, as a church and as a Christians, you really need to know that you're serving Christ and your manner of living for Christ and your speaking is by whatever you're going through in your own life, your own struggles, suffering, whatever term you want to use, is for the Lord. He has allowed that. He's brought it on just for you as a gift so that ultimately when it's all said and done, look at Christ and look at the glory it's going to bring Him. Amen? Now, we're going to finish this up and we're just going to fly through it. Are you ready? He says, you're going to experience what I've experienced. Experiencing the same conflict. And I'll I'll get to that word real quick. You've heard of agony? Well, the Greek word is agon. A-G-O-N. Yeah, you have it right there. That's the root word. Agony. And it's another word that would be used in the Greek Olympic Games. You've, or even in a theater, you've witnessed like a theater or like the Olympic Games, you've witnessed my suffering or my agony. To agonize an athlete would be in agony as he worked out hard to be able to win whenever it counted. Fighting the good fight. The inward conflict of the soul. It's found in Luke 2 where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane being in agony, agone, he prayed all the more earnestly, sweating as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. His agony was so much that drops of blood came from him. That's agony. We have conflict, folks. This is real. This battle, this war, this athletic event that we're in, it's going to cause us to 
strive together, standing firm, and we are going to suffer. It's hard, but I want to tell you, it's great, it's good, because look what God is doing and He gets the glory. We must. I'm going to wrap it all up. We must stand fast together in one spirit and one mind. We must strive together for the Gospel of Christ as we suffer together for doing both of those other things. And when we do that, we have the marks of a good, spiritual, healthy church. Amen? That's what we want. We want to be a healthy church. What the Word of God says.